Good morning. How are we this morning? We good? Man, what a great day to be in the house of the Lord. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that in God's perfect providence we have the opportunity to come together and look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you'll get your Bibles out, open to the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, somewhere around 1352, I believe the page would be. Um, we are in our ninth sermon as we are working our way through Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica. And we've talked about how this young church has just flourished in their uh, relationship with God and in all the ways that God is working through them and they're impacting the people around them. And, and it's just been wonderful to see God writing their stories and then for us to walk beside them and to think about how God's writing our stories. And so we've said every week as we've gone through this book, we talked about how our lives are telling a story and that God has changed our setting by putting us uh, in a gospel community. And then we make choices within that setting that will set the context of our story. And so just because your setting is in a gospel community, that doesn't necessarily mean that your story will be a remarkable story for the glory of God. You make choices within the context, and those choices we make every day that will tell our story. Now today, we're going to look at a different facet of our story. You see, uh, if you go to the movies or you read a lot of books, uh, you will uh, inevitably come across sequels. And most of the time, when I think of a sequel, I think of you know, it's going to be not as good as the first one. It's just an attempt to make a little extra money off of the momentum that's already built by the first installment or the first story. Now, with the story that we're writing in our lives, all of us will have a sequel. But not all of us will have a remarkable sequel. Those who are in Christ will actually begin a new story one day, and it will be so remarkable that the sequel will completely outshine the story. But the story of our lives here on this earth are what leads us into that sequel. Then for other people, the sequel is going to be, uh, to say bad would be the understatement of the universe. It will be horrible. But everybody's going to have a sequel to their story. And today, I hope that God really encourages our heart as we look at Paul talking about the sequel to our story and how that will begin and how we will be ushered into this new amazing uh, opportunity based on the choices that we make in the setting and context that we find ourselves in today. So I want to pray, then we'll study together. Father, we do thank you for your word. It is our most precious earthly possession. We're so grateful and thankful that you have loved us enough and so much that you've told us everything that we need to know about life and godliness. And Lord, you've revealed yourself in your word. And we pray today that you'd meet us here, speak to us and change us through the power of your word. We pray that your spirit would work mightily within us, that we'd have ears to hear and hearts willing to receive everything that you have to say to us, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I hope you have an outline to keep up with the sermon notes. And the first thing I want you to know 
is that in this life, uh, your belief about death is going to determine your behavior in life. Your belief about death is going to determine your behavior in life. In other words, one of the central components that's going to drive what choices you make in the context that God has you in is going to have a whole lot to do with what you believe about death. Now, death is one of those conversations that nobody really wants to talk about. And we live in a culture that wants to just avoid it and pretend it's not there and push it off and try never to think about it. And then, you know, for some of us, we have to think about it all the time because it's a part of what God called us to do. And you notice when you got here this morning in your bulletin that you saw four families listed that uh, our hearts are with as they've lost someone this week who is very precious to them. And uh, that's, that's hard. And there are also many of you that have recently lost somebody. There are also uh, families within our faith family and extended families from there out that are facing those times right now. And so it's, it's around us all the time. And if we're willing to uh, open our eyes and really be uh, wise about what we believe about death, it will greatly, greatly help us. And so I hope that today you'll find that. Now, Paul, in this text, is going to use a few uh, very simple sort of uh, points to direct our hearts to what he wants us to know. The first thing, number one, the first thing I want you to see is clarity. Clarity matters greatly. Notice what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Look at what he says. He says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. The first thing that Paul does in this section is he introduces the fact that he's concerned about the behavior of believers. And he's concerned about their behavior with regards to their belief and understanding about death. And so he brings this forward and sort of says, now, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant about death. I don't want you to be ignorant about what the scripture teaches about death. I want you to know what the truth is. And I want you to be able to embrace it. Because if you don't, you're going to make the mistake of sorrowing like others who have no hope. In other words, a believer sorrows at death in a tremendously different way than an unbeliever. A person who is ignorant about the reality of death is going to grieve in a very different way than a person who is secure in their understanding and has clarity about what God teaches about death. And so the first thing Paul wants us to have is clarity. Now, not knowing what is true about life, death, God, and the gospel allows what is not true to influence and dominate our emotions and responses. Now, when I wrote that, I know it's long, but I had to say everything I needed to say. I thought to myself, now, there are so many ways that I could make the point that that is so absolutely true. Maybe now as much, at least, as it has ever been. For example... So many times I'm having conversations with people and something about death or the afterlife will come up. And I'm talking about people that attend church and they will begin to talk to me about the afterlife and about death. And I can tell from what they're saying that their understanding of death and the afterlife has been shaped by contemporary books and movies. 
that they understand things by stories about little boys who went to heaven and came back and told their family a bunch of stuff about what happened. Or a pastor that had a near-death experience and wrote a book about how he went to heaven and came back and told everybody about it. And they immediately go to the top of the bestseller list. And it doesn't matter how utterly and completely unbiblical that is. We entertain ourselves by things that are quote-unquote, you know, biblical. And they begin to affect our theology. And then we're wrongly equipped to even know what's really going on. Listen... I don't want you to learn about the end times from a Kirk Cameron movie. I want you to learn about the end times from the Bible. So it, because that's the only way you're going to know what's really going on. You need to learn what God has said, not what Hollywood is trying to feed you. Okay, but we're clamoring for information, but oftentimes we're led, misled because we're looking in the wrong places. Now I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 13. He doesn't say don't grieve. Does he say that? No. He doesn't say don't grieve. He says grieve differently. These verses are meant to comfort us in our grief. We're going to mourn. We're going to grieve. We're going to weep. But as believers, it's going to be different than those who have no hope. And so the question is, what are the Thessalonians grieving over? Because here's a church that has been flourishing in every way. They're, being, they're facing great persecution from the uh, surrounding you know, world in which they live in. And they're under immense pressure, and yet the, the more pressure the, the world puts on them, the more they seem to grow and flourish. And now there's this grieving, there's this struggling. Well, what's going on? Well, uh, they, they have great concern in the church. And here's why. Paul came in and began to teach uh, three consecutive Sabbaths in the synagogue about the gospel, and people began to get saved. Now, you got to remember, these are all basically new believers, and they are very zealous and full of life in Jesus. But there's things that they're not sure about. Now, Paul told them that Jesus is about to come back, and they're super pumped about that. So they've been running around getting everything ready because Jesus is about to come back, and so they're excited about that, and they're living for God. But then time started to pass. I don't mean much time, just some time. And people within their faith family started to die. Natural causes. Maybe they died because of persecution. And then they got confused. And they started thinking, now wait a minute. What happens if you die before Jesus comes back? Do you, do you miss Jesus? Somehow, are you, you know, are you, you know what, what's taking so long? And, and what about our loved ones? What about our, our faith family members that have passed on? You see, they, in a lot of ways, were thinking that Jesus would have already been back, as many of us were thinking that he would have, certainly would have returned before the last election and absolutely before the Cubs ever won the World Series, right? So how did those things happen? But they did. And so we're real good about coming to these monumental moments in life and thinking, well, you know, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back, which he is, but we'll get to that in just a minute. But they're trying to figure out what has happened to those who have died as Christians. Are they suffering wrath now until Jesus comes back? I mean, how does this work? Are they in some kind of a soul sleep? I mean, they, they don't understand are we ever going to see him again? What, what's happening? Did they, did they miss their chance to see Jesus? 
And so here's what I want you to see. Bad theology leads to unhealthy responses. You see, they started mourning in inappropriate ways. Now, I do a lot of funerals, and that's not by choice. That's just by design. And most of the funerals I do are wonderful celebrations of life, but not all of them. And sometimes I uh, end up doing funeral services for people that, that I'm, families that I'm wanting to serve and, and doing funeral services for people that I really didn't know. And, and there's lots of unanswered questions and things are kind of muddy and we're not really sure what's going on. And when I'm in those situations, not only am I uncomfortable because I'm trying to sort out what's going on, but, but what really makes me uncomfortable is, is that I can see who is and isn't walking with Jesus by the way they react in the funeral service or at the wake or in the funeral home. See, when somebody loses someone important to them and they have no hope, they have bad theology, there's going to be great wailing and great angst and great suffering that's going to be different from the way people who have confidence and hope in Jesus grieve. And you've all seen that. I'm sure that almost every one of us in this room have seen that played out. Bad theology leads to unhealthy responses. Look at verse 14. So Paul says, remember, we're getting clarity here. And then he goes on to say, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So again, he's giving us more clarity. He's saying, uh, listen, uh, this conversation about the sequel to your story needs to begin with clarity. You see, Paul, notice how he doesn't start with this great discourse about the afterlife. He doesn't start talking about all the, the pleasures of heaven and all the glorious things about those who are with Jesus. He doesn't start talking about the resurrection body and how wonderful that is. He doesn't do that. He starts by reminding them. He tells them why they need clarity, and then he focuses on clarity in the gospel. You see, he begins to talk about what the gospel has told us through the Word of God. Now, in verse 14, he says, well, if we believe that Jesus died, and this whole conversation with the Thessalonians is about death. Now, why do we die in the first place? Why is, there even, why is death even part of this life to begin with? Death wasn't originally part of the plan. We were created to live eternally. But in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says sin entered the world, and when sin entered the world, it separated us from God. Now, if God is the author of life, and we're separated from the author of life, then only one thing can make sense, and that is enter death. So the reason there's death in the world in the first place is because there's what? Sin. The Bible says for the wages of sin is death. Right. So we know that. We understand that. And so... We say, now, Jesus died, and part of understanding Jesus' death is understanding why we die, and then we think about how fragile and dependent we are because we don't know when that will happen. We have absolutely no guarantee that any of us will actually be back in church next Sunday. 
You know, most of the people over the years, and it's been a lot of years that I've been doing this here, and the vast majority of folks in our faith family that have either went from this life to the next or have began the process, you know, the last Sunday they were in church, they didn't know it was going to be their last Sunday in church. They didn't know that. There wasn't, you know, they didn't get a note in the, uh, the mail that said, oh, by the way, you know, I hope Ron plays your favorite song. It's going to be your last Sunday. No, it doesn't work like that. We don't know that. So it makes us feel dependent and fragile. And, and we, we start thinking about this. Now, death seems unloving and, and ungracious. It seems like, well, why, why do we have to have this? But no, listen, God is a just God. He's a merciful God. He's a, he's a gracious God. And even despite our sin that separates us from God, He still pursues us relentlessly through His Son, Jesus, to resolve this separation. But you see, the choices that we make in the setting that we've been placed in are going to determine the story that we tell. And so though God may, God desires for all men to come to faith in Christ, but all don't come. And so your choices and your free will play into this whole issue of what is going on. And so God sent his son Jesus to absorb our wrath, the, the, the wrath that we were due, the wrath of God that was due on us. And Jesus took upon himself the ultimate separation from the Father. And that's why when he hung on the cross, he said, Father, well, why have you forsaken me? You see? Because he took on that separation that we were born into in our sin. But if Sin is to be defeated. Well, it's only logical that we wouldn't die. Because if sin was defeated there, and, and sin was the cause of death, then if there's defeated sin, then there's not going to be death, right? That only makes sense. Well, that's where the resurrection comes in. That's why Paul draws them to the death of Jesus and then the resurrection of Jesus. Because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead then we're all still in our sins and we're a people to be most pitied of all people, right? Because think about this. If all Jesus did was die, there's no victory in that because he's just one of, of millions upon millions of people that have died. The resurrection is what proves his victory over sin, therefore victory over death. So everything hinges on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as, as to have clarity as to what's going to happen going forward. Sin has to be defeated or else we will forever, eternally be separated from God. You understand? Okay, so you've got to have clarity there before you can move forward. Think of it this way. The fact that Jesus died and rose again is not the entirety of the gospel, but it is the essential component of it. If you remove that component from the gospel, you have nothing but a story. There's no victory. There's no victory without resurrection. There must be a perfect life lived, a horrible death given, and a glorious resurrection by the power of God 
for victory to be there. So it's not the entirety of the gospel, but it is the essential component of it. So now we have some clarity. Let's go to what everyone wants to talk about. Let's get to the things that all of you will love to have this conversation. But in order to do that, we've got to have clarity. So number two, we're going to talk about the characteristics, the characteristics of what is this going to be like? What is this conversation about? What is Paul even talking about here in these verses? Verse 16, look at what the Scripture says. Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive shall remain and shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, that sounds pretty exciting. If we've got clarity on the first part and we've got the gospel down and we understand that this, this uh, clarity in the gospel is going to impact everything that we do, the way that we behave, it's going to transform our character, it's going to write the narrative of our story, all these things are going to happen now. Paul goes into these sequence of events. You know that, that in verse 17, that catching up, that be caught up together, harpazo, that Greek word, it's the snatching away or the gathering up. It's the word we use for rapture. We get that from the Latin translation, which is rapti, and so we use this term rapture. And so sometimes people say, well, preacher, the word rapture is not in the Bible. And I say, well, brain surgeon, uh, it's because you're reading it in the English. It's there. You just got to dig in. It's the catching away. So we don't have to call it rapture. We could call it the catching away if you wanted to or the, the caught upness if you want to. But doesn't rapture seem to work better? I like rapture. Now there's some confusion about the rapture. I'm sure some of you are confused about the rapture and you don't even know you're confused about the rapture because we use different terminology sometimes that mixes us up. So let me help you understand and get, get, get some solid ground with regards to the rapture, okay? The rapture is the secret coming of Christ, not the second coming of Christ. Now, the way I teach this is I teach that the rapture is the secret coming, and then the second coming is going to be when Jesus returns with all of his saints for final victory. Now, some people call the rapture the second coming, and then Jesus' return in uh, Revelation 19, the, the third coming. But I don't, I don't, I, this is the secret coming, and then we're going to have the second coming, and we'll get to that in subsequent weeks. But at the rapture, the Lord comes for his own. Clearly, he says that. At the second coming, the Lord comes with his own. Let me, let me show you. The second coming of Christ is a whole different scenario altogether. This is Revelation 19, verse 11. I'll just read this for you. The revelator John says, Now I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had the name written on him that no one knew except himself. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, you see, that's us, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. You better start practicing. <laughs> now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations 
And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads on the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the second coming. That is a very different scenario than the rapture. And so at the second coming of Christ, we who... Uh, believe in Jesus we who are with him will come back with him and it will be for his final victory but the rapture is different that's not the rapture the rapture is the catching away of the church the rapture is all about the church just focus on that the secret coming of Christ is about Christ receiving or retrieving the church and the church is his bride the groom is coming for his bride. Now, in a Jewish wedding ceremony, some of you may be familiar with some of this because of other uh, very popular stories in the Bible, but in a Jewish wedding ceremony, uh, a man and a woman would first be betrothed to one another. Usually that would be an arranged betrothal like Mary and Joseph were in the Christmas narrative. And when a man and woman were betrothed, think of that as a binding engagement. Now, in our culture, when two people get engaged, um, they can break it off at any time. In a Jewish wedding culture, once you're betrothed, you are legally married. You're just not spiritually and physically married. So you are bound by that. And in order to break a betrothal, you'd have to get divorced. So it's, it's very different. Now, when they get betrothed, they're now going to get married. But they don't exactly know when they're going to get married because some other things have to happen. And so the first thing that happens is the groom has to go back to his father's house, go back to his family land, and he has to build a suitable place for him and the bride to live. You see... You don't just marry somebody and you don't have, you know, anybody who comes to me and says, oh, pastor, we want to get married. Well, one of the first things we're going to talk about at some point in the initial conversation is, now, are we ready to get married? Do you have the capacity to support yourself and to be married and so on and so forth? Well, so the groom would have to go home to his father's house and he'd have to build a place for him and his bride to live. Well, as he was preparing that, Still, the bride would be at home waiting, and she would be ready, and she'd basically have her bags packed, and she'd be anticipating the coming of her groom, and so on and so forth. But, but here's the, the, the thing. The only person that knows when the wedding is actually going to commence is the groom's father, because the groom's father makes the final determination that the place that he's prepared is adequate and ready to receive a bride because there's a great deal of pride there. He's not going to, he can't have his son bring a bride home to a place that's half prepared. You understand? That's a Jewish wedding. John chapter 14, the Bible says, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Didn't we just sing this? And if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you and I go to prepare this place for you, and I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's telling you in the context of a wedding that I am coming to get my bride. Now, what did Jesus tell us about the, the coming? In, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but who? My 
father only. He's coming to get the bride. The son is preparing the place for the bride, which is the church, and no one knows when it's prepared and when the time's going to come except for who? The father. And so this is what the rapture is. It's a picture of the catching away of the church. Jesus comes to get his bride. Now, the best way to understand the events that are going to follow here, I think, are by using four R's. So let's go through these, and this will help you to sort of understand the events that are laid out because this is the definitive passage of Scripture in the New Testament with regards to information about the rapture. Now, God didn't tell us all of this. What I'm about to teach you is not given to us to entertain us. It's not there to, uh, to, to soothe our curiosity. No, no. It's there for instruction purposes only. It's there for us to know. It's there to for us to believe in and to embrace so that it impacts the way that we live our lives, which is the whole way we got into this conversation. Remember that a few minutes ago? Okay. The first R. Return. Return. The Scripture says in verse 16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Notice Jesus doesn't send a delegation of angels to retrieve his bride. You see, when the bride is waiting for her groom to come and retrieve her, she doesn't know exactly when that's going to be. But let me tell you what the bride doesn't want to see. The bride doesn't want to see the groomsman coming over the hill. Oh, honey, hey, it's time. No, no. She wants to see, she wants to see her groom. And the groom wants to see his bride. And so Jesus doesn't, I mean, listen, Jesus could have uh, done any sort of ways to retrieve his church. But no, no, this is personal to him. He comes himself. He returns himself to retrieve his bride. And so it's the rapture, the secret coming of Christ. Okay, so we've got a return, and then we've got a resurrection. Next, we have a resurrection. So after the return is the resurrection. So the Bible says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. There's a resurrection. Now, what does this mean? The dead in Christ will rise first. Now, to understand this, you've got to back up a little bit and look at verse 14 and be clear. The Scripture says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then what's the next statement? Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now, I'm going to get to that in a minute. But Jesus is coming back for his bride. He's coming back to retrieve his bride. He's coming back to retrieve all those who have died in Christ. And he's bringing with him those who have already died. But... They're going to join together with those who live, and together he's going to retrieve everybody in this resurrection. Now, what this is talking about, the dead in Christ will rise first, is the the receiving of a resurrection body. Now, don't get ahead of yourself here. Just, just Just stay with me. A resurrection body is not getting back what you once had. See, for some of us in the room... I'll be honest, it would be really nice if I could have back what I had at 30. I'd be happy about that. 
Things are really starting to hurt. <laughs> That's not what this is. This is infinitely better than that. We're not getting back what we once had. We're getting something that is, is inconceivably superior and better to what we once had. Now, notice some, some things the Bible says about this resurrection body. In 1 Corinthians 15... Verse 42, Paul says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Now, here's what he says. The body is sown in corruption, but in this new body, it is raised in incorruption. In other words, everything about us now is breaking down. And, you know, when you're young, you don't realize that. And the older you get, the more in tune you are with the frailty and the breaking down of the body. But this new body will be incorruptible. It won't break down, but it will have capacities that are so superior to, the, to anything you ever had that it, there's not even any comparison. Now, in the weeks to come, I'll be able to get into more details about what, what this will be like. But I just want you to sort of suffice it this morning to see that there's going to be a resurrection. And so the people who have died in Christ, the people who maybe whom you have lost, who have been close to you, your loved ones who have gone to be with the Lord, they're with him. Now, how do I know that? Well, because the Bible just said so. He's coming back and he's bringing with him those who have died in Christ, right? So they're with him. And they're okay. And they're in heaven. And it's amazing. And it's wonderful. But they're not complete yet. They're not complete yet. They're awaiting this resurrection body as we are. And so if the Lord returns today, which praise the Lord would be awesome, if he returns today, then we would all get our resurrection bodies today. Today. And what a thought. That is. So we've got a return, we've got a resurrection, and then thirdly, we have a rapture. A rapture. Now, just one clarification. So because we're not getting back what we once had, then obviously you're intelligent enough to just come to the logical con conclusion that the condition of the earthly body is of no use whatsoever, correct? So don't worry. Sometimes I've heard people say, well, you know, they've been dead a long time. You know, so there's probably nothing left in that box. No. No, you're missing the whole point. What you're getting in no way, shape, or form is rebuilt parts from the first go-round. Okay, this is all brand new and has capabilities that you can't imagine. You won't even be bound by, look, you won't be bound by space. If you look at what Jesus did when he was on earth in a resurrection body, he could go from here to there just like that. Anywhere he wanted to go, he'd just think it, he'd be there. We're going to be able to just be all over. We'll be able to go all over the new heaven and the new earth and, and, and go anywhere we want to go, see anything we want to see. We won't be bound, but there won't be, you won't have, if you, if, if in heaven you ride on the back of an animal or you uh, participate in some form of transportation, it will be for enjoyment purposes only. It will not be for necessity. Okay? I don't know everything about all that, but here's what I do know. You'll be able to go anywhere you want to go, anytime you want to go, without the hindrances of physical restrictions that we face now. So C is the rapture. Look at what he says in verse 17. 
Then we who are alive, so after the, the dead in Christ receive their bodies first. Now all of this is happening in just warp speed, blink, blink, blink. The Bible says a blink of an eye. The fastest movement of the human body is the blinking of an eye. And in the blinking of an eye, boom, 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 all these sequences happen. And so uh, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. Who's them? Those who have died in Christ, okay, who have been resurrected in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll meet the Lord in the air and we'll have our resurrection bodies. Now, I don't know how old that's going to be. I know that's going to be fully grown. Here's some clues about that. God made Adam. He was a grown man. I don't know how old he was when God made him, but I know that he was at some perfect age. So he was fully mature and grown. So we're going to be fully, you're not going to, your resurrection body's not going to be a toddler. Okay? No one's getting diaper, uh, diapers or potty trained in the resurrection body. That's not going to happen. So you're going to be fully matured and fully uh, perfect. So we're going to meet in the air at this rapture. Now, although we don't know when the rapture will come, because we've already established that no one knows except the Father, even the sun and the angels don't know. The rapture is next on God's calendar. The next thing to happen is the rapture. Now, that ought to excite you a little bit. Now, understand, now what I'm about to say, there are people that are very intelligent people that in a lot of ways I respect that disagree with my eschatology. But I don't really care. They'll, you know, when the rapture comes and we're on our way up, I'm going to tell them I told you so as we're going up. Say, so I tried to tell you that, Okay. So, if you disagree with me, that's fine. You know, I'll tell you on that day the same thing, okay? So, let me show you a chart. Here's a chart so, you just, so you're not confused. Now, what you see is the church age, which is where we are now. And at some point, the rapture of Christ will happen that I believe in that moment will... Jesus will come and take away the bride of Christ and will inaugurate what is known as the tribulation. The tribulation will be a seven-year period of great suffering divided into two halves, the tribulation and the great tribulation. The central point will be the desecration of the temple when the Antichrist declares himself to be God and desecrates the temple. And all of this you can learn from uh, my past series about the end times. The point being is that then at the end of that you see the return of Christ or what I call the second coming of Christ which will inaugurate the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand year rule and then finally the final judgment, the great white throne judgment and then the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? Now, I clearly believe that the rapture is going to come before the tribulation. Why do I believe that? Is it just because I'm really hoping that that's true because I don't want to go through the tribulation? Well, no, let's think about it. Let's, let's think about what Paul has already said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Here's what Paul said. How you, he's talking about the Thessalonians, and he says, How you turn from God and from idols to serve the living and true God. Look at verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from wrath to come. Now, if I got to go through the tribulation, I'm not being delivered from wrath to come. Now, am I? If you go to the last chapter of 1 Thessalonians, the same two verses, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, and chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, I don't know if there's some 
uh, significance of that, but it is strange that it's that way. The same thing is said where the Apostle Paul says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So he didn't appoint us to wrath. He's coming to receive us so we don't have to endure wrath. So all of those things tell me that the rapture is going to precede the tribulation. Now, not to mention the fact that when I work through the book of Revelation start to finish, I notice that there seems to be a progression in the prophetic nature of the book of Revelation. For example, if you read the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, it is almost universally about churches. 17 times, over and over and over, you find the churches, the churches, the letters to the church. It's all about the church. Chapter 1, 2, 3. Church, church, church. Then you get to chapter 4, and what happens? John, the revelator, is called up to heaven. He gets a glimpse of heaven. He's, it doesn't say that, but he's caught up, right? Then things change. There's not a conversation about the bride anymore. Things start going into judgment. You have judgment after judgment after judgment, right? You have the seven seals, and they're all judgment. And so you get through those, and you think, man, this has just got to be the end of this. You get to the seventh seal, it's opened up, and what do you got? Seven trumpets. And then there's seven more stages of judgment. And then you get to the last trumpet, and you get through that, and you think, whoo, and what do you got? Seven bulls. You have more. It's judgment after judgment after judgment all the way until you get to uh, from 6 to 18. Then you get to chapter 19, and what happens? The second coming of Christ that I read to you earlier. Now, you may not think that means anything, but I think that means a lot. That tells me that I have a pretty good idea. I can't be certain, but I have a pretty good idea that the rapture will precede the tribulation. And boy, I hope that I'm right. So, we have, and, and furthermore, one more thing. If the rapture is all about the groom coming to get the bride, what kind of groom lets his bride suffer wrath before he comes and gets her? Okay? So just think about that when someone's trying to convince you otherwise. Okay, so we have uh, the return, the resurrection, the rapture, and then the reunion. The reunion. Oh. At the end of verse 17, Paul says, so after all of this takes place, he says, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. You see, these words are meant to be a comfort to you today. Paul gives us these words. God gives us this truth as a, as a comfort. He wants you to know and to have clarity and to understand these characteristics so that you'll be able to grieve, yes, but as one who has hope. Now, I already told you that, you know, it's a, it's, a tough, it's a tough week in our fellowship 
We are, we're, we're a, a, a pretty young church when you look around at the median age of our church. So it's a pretty rare thing. It's a tough week when we have four uh, losses listed in our bulletin in one week. That usually doesn't happen. And this week, in particular, we lost two precious members of our family, two precious sisters in the Lord, just like the, the Thessalonians were grieving over their, their, their family members in the church, and they were, they were concerned about them, and they didn't know what, 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 for sure how all this was going to work out. And so, they were, and so Paul comes in and says, listen, I don't want you to be ignorant. So when you look at the faces of Miss Paulette or Miss Kathy, you think to yourself, now here's these two vibrant, wonderful, amazing people. But they're not with us anymore. You think about Dana losing her grandfather or Elizabeth Willison losing her brother, and they're not with them anymore. And as I stood out there in the freezing cold and the wind was blowing and me and Max and, and all of his family gathered around and there's this casket. And I thought about who was there. I also thought about who wasn't there. You know, the only person who wasn't at Paulette's funeral was Paulette. She wasn't there. I know. You see, because Paul tells us that when Jesus comes back in his second coming, or in his secret coming, that he's bringing with him all those who are always with him. He's bringing them with him. They're with him. So we're standing out there in the middle of a cemetery. Paulette's not there. She's where... I want to be. She's where we want to be. And so I, I look at Max and I look at their kids and their grandkids and I look at the sorrow that they feel and I think about Brian and Suzanne and, and their family and I think about Wade and I think about how hard it is to not have Miss Kathy here. But make no mistake about it. They're with Jesus. They are with Jesus, and, and today they are infinitely better than any person has ever been on their best day in this life. Infinitely better. That, that the best day you could ever imagine doesn't even compare to today where they are with Jesus. Now, Paul says in verse 14 that even so God will bring with him those who sleep. The Bible loves to refer to the death of a believer as sleep. Why? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that we are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? In Luke chapter 23, Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, to the thief on the cross, I mean, in this instant, he says to him, you will be with me in paradise today. In paradise. Now, that's clearly 
Awesome. That's clearly good. That's clearly with him. There's no distinction as to where somebody who is in Christ, who's not here, where they are. But why does the Bible use the term sleep? Because sometimes people try to twist this into some soul sleep, some intermediate state, some nonsense theology. Well, first you need to notice that the Bible only refers to sleep with regards to believers. When it comes to unbelievers, it uses the term death. So that phrase sleep is never used for anyone except believers. So for the Christian, death means, death is like sweet dreams. Death is, is, is restful for the believer. That, that it's, it's not restful for us because we're left here. We're still struggling in this, in this place. We're not yet where we long to be. But for the believer, death is, is restful. It's peaceful. It's like, it's like having sweet dreams. But for the person who doesn't know Jesus, it's like a nightmare. Because when they awake, their, their worst, most dreaded fears have all come true. You know, I told you last week, and I'll try not to get into this every single week. I just can't help it. I just, I can't, I can't uh, separate myself for what's going on in my own personal life in regards to what I'm talking to you about. So here me and Lisa are. We're ready to be grandparents. Kayla and Dalton. And... No, no, don't clap. She's not pregnant. Where's ready? <laughs> Hello, ready. We ain't celebrating yet. I think she's in the nursery. She's probably blushing in the nursery right now. She's like, why am I blushing out of control? So here we are. We're ready to be grandparents. But in the providence of God, we're raising a five-year-old. And I was thinking about how the Bible talks about sleep. And I was thinking about how when Lisa and Kaylee come home sometimes, you know, one of the challenges that we have is that Lisa can't pick her up because of her neck. And so sometimes when they come home, Kaylee's in her little car seat back there sound asleep. And Lisa will come in and get me and she'll say, Kaylee's out in the car and I'll go out there and I'll open the door and she's just so peaceful sleeping and I'll unbuckle her and I'll reach my arms under her and I'll pick her up into my arms and I'll carry her inside and I'll walk her upstairs into her little princess room and then I'll, you know, step over all the glitter and the Barbie dolls and the 17 pink things. And I'll set her down on her little bed. And she's just so peaceful and asleep. And she wakes up at some point. And she's in this wonderful bed in this wonderful room in this wonderful house and she doesn't know how she got from there to here that's what sleep is like for a believer Jesus comes and he just scoops you up 
And you don't even really know. And when your eyes open, you're with him in paradise. And you just know that one minute you were somewhere else and now you're here. That's how, that's how we pass from this life to the next. That's why the Bible talks about believers as asleep. And so, at this reunion, things change. But I want you to be clear about some things, okay? He's with us now. Now, you know that. He's with us now. Hasn't he promised to never leave you or forsake you? Yes. He said in the Great Commission, he said, And lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. But you see, then we're going to be with him. There's a difference between he's with us now and we're going to be with him. You see, for, for Paulette and for Kathy, it's way different than Jesus is with us now. They're with him. Let me show you how that works. In John chapter 17, look at what Jesus said. He said, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. Now this is Jesus who's talking about his disciples whom he's with here, but he says what my ultimate desire is is I want them to be with me there. You see? And so when Paul says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout... I thought, well, well, what's he going to shout? What's he going to say? I mean, the trumpet's going to sound, which is uh, a symbol of the gathering of people. These are sort of militaristic things. The archangel's going to be there. But what, what's Jesus going to shout? You know, whenever a shepherd calls his sheep, how does he call them? He calls them by name. And I believe Jesus at the rapture is going to come to retrieve his bride. And what you're going to hear is not necessarily some random shout, but you're going to hear your name called. Because the Bible says in John chapter 10, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, but they follow me. He said, and, and I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, neither can anyone snatch them out of my hand. He's coming to get his bride. And listen, he knows who his bride is, and he knows his bride's name. And he's coming. And I hope it's today, but I don't know when it is. But I can tell you it's going to be the very instant that the father tells the groom that what he's prepared is ready. And when he gives him the green light, the groom is coming. Now the question is, is the bride ready? You see, Jesus taught us that the groom didn't come for the five unfaithful virgins. He came for the prepared faithful ones, didn't he? Yeah. What do we need to do in response to this reality? We need to make sure that we're ready. Because listen, don't be ignorant about the end. He's coming. Don't be ignorant about where people are that you love who have passed on in Christ because the Bible tells us clearly where they are. Are you ready 
Are you ready when the groom comes to get his bride? That's the question. Do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Today. He's coming to get us. Let's stand and bow our heads.